On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, beginning now in verse 11, we read, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. Please be seated. Well, after the first three chapters of deep, rich theology, in chapter 4, Paul began the practical section of the letter. He began the, now in light of all this theology, so what section. So what does all of this mean, practically speaking? How does all of this theology apply to our lives? How does it work itself out in our lives? Well, before giving us any practical exhortation, Paul began with a statement in verses 1 and 2 about the Christian life, which he described as a walk. And he implored us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And those two verses set the stage for all the exhortations that follow from chapter 4, verse 3, to chapter 6, verse 20. And I want to pause here and for just a moment and say that these are exhortations from chapter 4 verse 3 all the way through chapter 6 verse 20 there are many exhortations or imperatives or commands things that you and I are supposed to do in light of all of theology in light of all that God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ he's going to tell us now through Paul how we're supposed to live And all of this instruction, all of these imperatives, all of these commands are not being offered up to us by Paul as mere suggestions. Paul is not in any way saying, well, you know, we've studied all of this rich theology and we're supposed to live this out and so I'd like to offer up all of these suggestions to you about how you might apply this in your life. And if you'd like to choose to do so, that would just be wonderful. Uh, And if not, well, that's okay too. That's not what he's saying. These are commands from the high king of heaven to us, his subjects. He is our creator. We are his by creation. He is our redeemer. He has purchased us. So we belong to him via, or by virtue of creation, by virtue of being redeemed. He is our king, the sovereign king of heaven. And he has every right to tell us how we are to live in his kingdom. And he is commanding us through the Apostle Paul all these things, all, all, the way, uh, all these ways in which we are to live that, that, uh, that is a, a, a walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And so who are you? And who am I? Who are we? 
that we would sit here this morning in judgment of God's word, deciding whether we're going to do what the king of heaven says to or not. Whatever gave any of us uh, the right to believe that God's commands are optional, any of them, or that in some way we have an exception, that what God says he requires of us, he doesn't really require of us. No, he does. He does. The high king of heaven is giving us instruction through the apostle on how we are supposed to live. And not to obey the high king of heaven is cosmic treason. It's a defiance of the true and the living God. And so those first two verses set the stage for all the exhortations, all the imperatives that are going to follow from verse 3 of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 6, verse 20. These are things that the Lord Jesus Christ, through Paul, is commanding us to do. And Paul is, is in these verses fleshing out for us what walking in a manner worthy of our calling, in other words, what living out the Christian life looks like. You know, how we're supposed to live life in the church, in our marriages, our homes, and in other various relationships within the community. And out of all the things that Paul could have started with, he began with living out Christian life in the church. And the first practical exhortation he gave us, you'll remember in verses 3 to 6, is for believers to put forth a full, intense effort to maintain with all vigilance the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he laid out the basis for our unity. And then in verses 7 to 10, Paul moved from unity to diversity within this unity, a diversity of spiritual gifts among the members of the church that contributes to the overall unity and growth of the body. Then in verse 11, Paul spoke of Christ giving not gifts, but gifted men to the church. And two of the offices, those of the apostles and prophets, were foundational. Their function was temporary. They were for the once-for-all founding of the church. But he also gave two permanent offices to the church, evangelists and pastor-teachers. And for what purpose? Well, to equip all believers to exercise their individual gifts for the work of service, for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ. And all of this is directed toward a goal. Verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Gifted men are to continue to teach and preach the word of God, equipping the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until all the church attains, first of all, the unity of the faith. Doctrinal unity when it comes to basic doctrinal truths of the Christian faith that all believers must believe and agree upon regardless of denomination. But the faith doesn't stop with having a knowledge of sound doctrine. It includes the knowledge of the Son of God. And he's talking about knowing the Son of God in an intimate, personal way. We're not talking about just the acquisition of, of more intellectual knowledge, or knowledge intellectually. No, he's talking about the ever-deepening personal knowledge that comes from walking with Christ. The knowledge that touches not only the head, but also the heart, resulting in a life of devotion and dedication. Secondly, Paul says, until we attain to mature manhood. And so having begun with an emphasis on unity, Paul now includes the goal of spiritual maturity. The goal of every ministry should be the maturity, not only of individual believers, but the maturity of the church as a whole, which is Paul's point here. God's chief purpose for the church is that it might become mature, and that each of its members might contribute to that maturity by becoming uh, themselves spiritual adults. Thirdly, Paul says, gifted men are to continue to teach and preach the word of God, equipping the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until all the church attains to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Paul is saying simply this, God's purpose in establishing the ministry of his word in the life of the church is that every single believer, without exception, come to be like his son. 
Because you see, God is not satisfied that you simply go to church. There are a lot of religious unbelievers that go to church every Sunday, every, every Sunday of the year. So that may or may not mean a thing. I mean, God is not satisfied that you simply go to church. Rather, he demands that we be conformed to the image of his dear son. That corporately or collectively, the whole church is Christ-like. I mean, that's the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what maturity looks like in the church. It looks like Christ. I mean, we should be showing the world Christ. So when the world looks at us, looks at the church, it should get a glimpse of the Savior. That's the goal. That the church would grow in spiritual unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness in order to reflect the radiance of Christ's glory in a dark and dying world. You see, the purpose of the church is not evangelism. The purpose of the church is not to do social service ministry in the world. The purpose of the church is not to be a fortress and a refuge where we can escape the world. According to Paul's teaching on the church here in Ephesians, none of these are the primary purpose of the church. And yes, of course, I mean, certainly uh, the church must evangelize and minister, and and protect. But that is not God's chief purpose for the church itself. According to Paul, the chief purpose of the church is that we, God's people, should grow so that we finally attain to the spiritual unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. That's the goal, to be like Christ. And Paul sums it all up in verse 15 when he says, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. So God's ultimate purpose for us together in the church is Christ-like maturity individually and as a church. You know, Genesis 1.27 says that God created man in His own image. And together as a church, we are to fulfill that purpose by reflecting God's character as we grow into Christ's likeness and then live out His commands. And now as we come to the last three verses of this first section, Paul tells us the result. The result of gifted men equipping saints to serve the Lord and others so the church grows in spiritual unity and into maturity in Christ's likeness. First of all, in verse 14, is doctrinal stability. Doctrinal stability. One prominent mark of the mature Christian is doctrinal stability. I'm going to read verses 11 to 14 again. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And the result of that? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now, it is highly significant that when Paul talks about the spiritual maturity of the church, you know, doctrinal uh, discernment and, and stability is at the very top of the list. And I would venture to say that it would be at the bottom of most lists among American Christians in our day, but even made the list at all, because American Christians, by and large, are not concerned with doctrine. Verse 14 tells us we should no longer be children. The word children is literally one who does not talk. And so it's speaking about infants and, and of course, very young children. And in the New Testament, this word can mean physical children or, as in our context, a childlike gullibility and lack of experiential knowledge. So Paul is using the word children here, metaphorically, to refer to spiritually immature believers 
in stark contrast to the mature man or the mature believer in verse 13. And so he describes spiritually immature believers as infants. And like physical infants, the spiritually immature lack discernment, which makes them vulnerable to anyone who would hurt them. And like physical infants, spiritual, Im, Im, spiritually immature believers are in need of constant feeding. However, they don't have the discernment to know whether they've been fed food that is good or bad. They're too young to discern what is right or wrong and tend to be attracted by anything that makes them feel good. Like physical infants, the spiritually immature act impulsively based upon their feelings at the moment rather than thoughtfully and carefully basing their actions on biblical principles and truth. Rather, they live by feelings and emotions. Like physical infants, the spiritually immature, generally speaking, lack uh, much biblical knowledge, if any at all. You know, they're ignorant of sound doctrine, and they don't even know what they don't know. They don't even know what they don't know. And therefore, they're easily deceived by people that want to take advantage of them. They're gullible. And they believe nearly anything that someone tells them, often inviting false doctrine into their lives, and the result is disaster. And so it's not unusual to see an immature believer who's not being watched over closely reading books by Joyce Meyer, or Joel Osteen, or Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. Etc., etc., etc. All false teaching. And it's amazing the things that we are deceived by. You know, by false teaching, by the cults, and not only by uh, the false teachers and the cultists, but even by other new Christians and, and then some who are maybe just a little above them who don't have any real comprehension of doctrine yet, but who have some really crazy ideas. And so they're deceived by them too. Like physical infants, the spiritually immature have a very short attention span. And they get bored easily. They pay attention to one thing, and a few minutes later, they're on to something else. And then on to something else. And today, I suppose this is due in part to social media where everything comes to us in sound bites. Consequently, I mean, many have a very short attention span. And this is characteristic of new believers. You know, whether they're listening to the preaching of the Word or in a Bible study or reading the Bible for themselves, their attention span is, is often very short. They, they get bored easily. They can't stick with one thing for very long. They, they've got to have something new all the time. They're always looking for you know, the new, the sensational, something that has that wow effect. I mean, and their immaturity is seen by this, seen by their boredom. I mean, immature believers are very quickly bored with the gospel. They think, oh yeah, the gospel, I believe, that's at the beginning. Now let's really move on to the deep things, man. You never move on from the gospel. You never move on from the gospel. You only grow and mature into a deeper understanding and appreciation of the profound depth of the gospel. Children are also extremely selfish. I mean, that's just characteristic of them. And like physical infants, the spiritually immature are usually very selfish. It's characteristic of the spiritually immature. They're they're selfish. They're, They're interested in my blessing, the things that help me, or I'm not helped by this, or I'm not built up by this, and they're only concerned about themselves, you know, my blessing, my interest, my preference. They don't think about the whole body of Christ. They're only concerned about themselves and what they want when they want it. And there's another thing about children. They think they know everything. Right? Everybody that has kids knows that's true. They're all-knowing. 
at least in their minds. And the same is true of the spiritually immature. I mean, they may not think they know everything, but they think they know more than they actually know. Again, but they don't even know what they don't know. But they know that they know more than those whom God has called and ordained to teach them. You know, they know more than those who, who are mature Christians and who have learned uh, some important things that would be very profitable for them to know. You know, the truth is, the more mature a believer is, the more he or she loves the most basic truths of the gospel and the plainest doctrines that are central to Christianity. You know that a student once asked one of the great theologians of the 20th century, you know, he he was asked, this theologian was asked, you know, in all of your uh, study of theology over all these years. Well, what, what's the most profound uh, theological truth you've come across? You know what he said? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. See, we think that's, oh, that's so infantile. No, that is deeply, deeply profound. Well, these are all characteristics of children, though the spiritually immature, and Paul says that we're no longer to be children. We're no longer to be like this. But no matter how accomplished we are in life, when we're born again uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, we begin as spiritual babes, spiritual infants. And it doesn't matter if you're 15, 30, 60, or 90. When you're born again, Through faith in Christ, you begin as a spiritual babe, a spiritual infant who is immature in the faith and who needs to grow up spiritually. I mean, Jesus told us to have a humble childlike faith, one that trusts Him completely, but not a childish faith. Not not a faith that remains ignorant and, and weak in the things of God. And this is why the the idea that the church should should aim its worship and its teaching at the level of the most immature people is absolutely ridiculous and contrary to Scripture. Because we are to grow up as a church, not remain children. And this is why in verse 11, Paul spoke about the teaching gifts, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. God has given these men to the church to grow it out of spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity so that we are no longer children. And Paul tells us why this is so extremely important. Look back at verse 14 so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by cunning, human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So that we may no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, which is a reference to false doctrine. So Paul's painting a vivid picture here to impress on us how vulnerable and how unstable spiritually spiritually immature believers can be. And Paul likens them to a, a ship that's being tossed around in a stormy sea. You know, they're at, they're at the mercy of the waves and the wind. You know, they've blown this way and then that way, back and forth, up and down, carried in one direction, and then the next minute being carried in another with, with no anchor to keep them safe and secure. In other words, their beliefs change every time they hear something new. You know, they're, they're, they're moved by every new doctrine, every new religious fad that comes along, especially if lots of people are buying into it. And it seems like the things to do, because after all, we all know that if everyone is into it, and if it's attracting the crowds, it must be right. If it works, it must be right. Wrong. And so they never come to settled convictions. 
Now they're just all over the place, following this person and that person, buying into this teaching and into that teaching, and so their opinions are really those of the last preacher they heard or the last book they read. They don't have any convictions of their own. And so they're easy prey to every false teaching and every new theological fad that blows through the church. And this kind of doctrinal instability is evidence of immaturity. Because instability and immaturity always go together. And such people are like uh, ships without a rudder. They're just, they're just tossed back and forth by the churning waves and changing winds. And this problem is made even worse by the cunning and deceit of false teachers. He says they're tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Spiritually immature and unstable believers, whether they live in the first uh, the first century or the, or the 21st century are always easy prey for false doctrine that is presented as truth. It's pre- because it's presented as truth by, Paul says, human cunning. Human cunning. And this word cunning really should be translated trickery. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word cube. And it literally referred to the throwing of dice. And so just as today the, the dice were often loaded or manipulated by dishonest gamblers so that they could fleece some unsuspecting victim. Well, the term also became synonymous with, with cheating and, and deceit of, of any sort. So Paul's point is that false teachers, like a dishonest gambler, use deceit to promote their teaching without being suspected of it. And how do they do this? Well, Paul says, by craftiness. By craftiness. And this word means cunning, treachery, you know, deceitfulness, usually characterizing an especially wicked character. This word was used of Satan deceiving Eve in 2 Corinthians 11.3, where it's translated cunning. It refers to the unscrupulous and deceitful way in which false teachers cleverly manipulate error, making it to look like truth in order to dupe immature and unsuspecting believers. I mean, pragmatism and manipulation are, are no doubt in view here. And to do this, Paul says, uh, or they do this, Paul says, by deceitful schemes. Deceitful schemes. The word deceitful indicates that that it's often difficult to detect. And deceitful scheming indicates that there's a deliberate plan. The word scheming originally had the idea of tracking someone as a wild animal tracks its prey. And that is exactly how false teachers work. They use trickery, cunning, deceitful schemes to make their false teaching look like truth, to deceive immature believers in order that they can draw them in. One man said, children invariably enjoy entertainment and showmanship. Many of the religious hucksters parading on TV draw in immature, untaught Christians like a barker at a circus lures people to pay, uh, lure, lures people to pay to see the freak show. Although these teachers brazenly deny essential biblical truth, people send them money in hopes of being healed or having a serious problem resolved. Although these false teachers flaunt expensive watches and jewelry, poor people send them more money to buy a new personal jet. It is incredible, and it all stems from a lack of doctrinal discernment. And you know, one of the tragedies of our day is that the church is so immature in this area. And consequently, it's always being carried along by the world's fads or or being led astray by false teaching. And loved ones, this is a very serious problem. This is very serious. And that is exactly why the entire Bible, especially the New Testament, is filled throughout 
with warnings about false teachers and exhortations to believe the truth revealed by God and His Word and to hold on to that truth at all costs. I mean, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They come looking like one of the sheep. Like one of the believers. But Jesus said, inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They're not what they appear to be. They're not nice people. Someone says of a false teacher, well, yeah, but yeah, I know they're off, but they're a nice person. No, they're not a nice person. I'm serious. A nice person would not lead thousands of people to an eternal hell. That's not nice. That's not a nice person. That's a deceitful, scheming liar who, who cares nothing about people, but everything about himself. They are ravenous wolves. And in his explanation of the end times, Jesus emphasizes the danger of false Christs and false prophets who will deceive many there in Matthew 24. And then the Apostle Paul warned of false apostles who are disguised as angels of light and servants of righteousness. He warned the Galatians that if men distorted the gospel in, in any way, that they were to be accursed. In other words, they were to be damned. He warned the Colossians of those who were trying to take them captive through philosophy and empty deception. He warned the Thessalonians that in the last days there will be a major apostasy that will deceive many. In his final three letters to Timothy and Titus, there, there are, there are frequent, uh, Paul gives frequent exhortations to preach sound doctrine along with warnings about those who have turned to false doctrine. And then in Paul's final meeting with the Ephesian elders there on the beach at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, he, he said to them, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And what's even worse, he said next, and from among your own selves, from out of the church, Men will arise speaking perverse things. Why? Paul says to draw away the disciples after themselves. They want to draw away a following. In addition, the epistles of John, 2 Peter, Jude, and Revelation all have extremely strong warnings against the dangers of false teachers. One man said, Indeed, it might almost be said that the New Testament came into being in order to warn Christian people to beware of the terrible, ever-present danger of being led astray by false teaching concerning our Lord Himself and His great salvation. Again, loved ones, this is a very, very serious issue. Because false teaching is deeply dishonoring to God and the Gospel, and it is deadly. It is deadly. Deadly. False teaching is leading people to hell by the millions. And the Bible very clearly teaches that Christians will face a continual threat of false teachers. And loved ones, know this. I mean, these false teachers are not men and women who are all just, you know, merely mistaken. They are very intentional in their deceit. Again, they are wolves in sheep's clothing whose only goal is to fleece the flock of God for their own gain. And the mere fact that someone is a pastor or, or a minister or claims to be and, and seems well-meaning, that, that's not enough. I mean, their life and their teaching must always be tested according to God's Word. For as one man said, error can never be harmless, nor false teachers innocent. And so this means that the immature believer who chooses a church based on the music and all the excitement and, and the programs, instead of the primary essentials of the faithful preaching of God's Word and doctrinal faithfulness, is putting him or herself and their entire family in grave, grave danger. 
And why would you do that? Why would someone do that? Put themselves and their family, their children in danger. And the same is true for those who read supposedly Christian books that are in fact heretical and dangerous to your soul. If you have books by any of the people I named and others of their ilk, you need to get rid of those right now. Don't give them away because nobody else should read them. Burn them. Put them in the trash. Loved ones, there will always be men and women whose main goal is not the spiritual well-being of God's people, but rather their own personal glory, power, and wealth. And they seldom, if ever, will find it convenient to teach God's Word faithfully. So we should never be shocked. We should never be shocked by the fact that there are deliberately deceitful preachers and teachers who present themselves under the guise of faithful ministers of the gospel. They're everywhere, all around us, on the airwaves, on television. They're everywhere. So how do we tell the difference between the true and the false teacher? Well, Paul described the true ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, if you'd like to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. How do we tell the difference between a true and or the true and the false teacher? Paul describes a true ministry there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, where he says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, in other words, by the open proclamation of the word of God, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's the kind of ministry you want to be a part of. A ministry rightly handling the word of truth where in demonstration of the spirit and power they preach the word in season and out of season. They reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's the kind of ministry you want to be a part of. The kind of ministry you want to learn from. One which clearly, unashamedly, without compromise, proclaims the full counsel of God so that you can grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you might come to maturity and Christ-likeness. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. One man said this about verse 14. It would be hard to find a more accurate description of the evangelical movement in our own time than the one Paul gives in verse 14. It often seems that every novel teaching, even if blatantly opposite to Scripture, immediately acquires a massive fervent following. Faithful ministers are scorned for not jumping onto a bandwagon that is leading people straight to ruin. The reason for this situation is our generation's determination to avoid maturity at all costs. The sad thing is that we have children who need us to be adults, yet as churches pursue worldly agendas and downplay the teaching of God's Word, there are few genuinely mature believers in our ranks. You know, J. Vernon McGee, who I think went to heaven around 1981, 82, right in there, was in the ministry for between 50 and 60 years. D. James Kennedy was also in the ministry for three and a half decades or so. And both of those men said that after decades and decades of pastoral ministry, preaching the Word of God, counseling God's people, they were both convinced that over half the people that sat in churches across this country every Sunday morning are not born again. I 
And if that's correct, that means, you know, only half the people in churches would be saved, and of those, there's probably a few number that are actually spiritually mature. Few genuinely mature believers in the church is not Christ's goal for the church, is it? No, Christ's purpose, His chief purpose for the church is that it might become full grown. And that each of its members might contribute to that maturity by becoming spiritual adults. And how does this happen? How do you become spiritual adults? Well, the, the, the only cure for spiritual immaturity is the teaching and preaching of God's Word followed by more teaching and preaching of God's Word. And then, still more teaching and preaching of God's Word. Individually, as Peter said, believers, like newborn infants, are to long for the pure spiritual milk, speaking of God's Word, that by it you may grow up into salvation. I mean, some here this morning need to start growing up spiritually. And spiritual maturity starts with getting serious about the Word of God. So be here on Sunday mornings for the preaching of the Word. Be involved in our men's and women's fellowship. Be in, be in a home fellowship. Then read and study your Bible on your own. Read other good, solid books that will help you understand the Bible and its doctrines. And then, and then go out and actually apply what you learn in your life. Actually live out the truth. I mean, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. You know, in the, in the Greek mind, wisdom was the acquisition of knowledge. That was wisdom to the Greek. But to the Hebrew, and which is, would be biblical, to them, true wisdom was first the acquisition of knowledge but then the ability to apply it in one's life, to actually do it. In other words, be do, being doers of the word and not hearers only. There are a lot of hearers who don't do, and they're deceived. You know, there are immature Christians who, I mean, they suffer because of their immaturity. But so often because they think they know more than they actually know. They will not get serious about feeding on God's Word. And until they do, there is little myself or the elders can do for them apart from prayer. Because I can preach my, uh, uh, I can preach my heart out, preach till I am blue in the face. But the other part of that dynamic is there has to be spirit-empowered listening where people uh, listen with humble, teachable hearts, receive the Word of God, meditate upon the Word of God, and then put it to practice. Otherwise, nothing's going to change. Nothing will change. And listen, I'm not standing up here because I think I know so much. I can tell you this, the one thing uh, that I learn again and again and again in all of my study is how very little I know and how much I don't know. But I'm pressing forward. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Christ has given gifted men to the church to faithfully teach God's word, equipping the saints for service, so that through the active involvement and service of every member, the church will grow up to maturity and as a result be marked by doctrinal purity and stability, able to discern those who hold false doctrine and then refuse to be turned away from the truth. 
I mean, the mature church will be growing in Christ-likeness. Never, never fully arriving at it in this life, but never being content with how far it's grown. The mature church is committed to the truth of God's Word, God's revealed Word, and ever seeking to grow in the experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first result of Christ giving gifted men to the church to equip saints for the work of service so the church grows into maturity in Christ-likeness is doctrinal stability. You know, so that we, we may no longer be children. And we're going to stop right there. Because I will never get through the rest of this. Not until the time for home fellowship to start. (laughs) You know, perhaps some of you are relatively new Christians. I know some that are. You know, you're not, you're not sure what to do get started with this whole idea of using your gift in the work of service in the church. Well, first of all, you just need to grow. Learn and grow. Be here for a while. And as you learn and as you grow in the faith and, and begin to apply the, the Word of God to your own life, then you, you, then you can begin looking for ways to serve the Lord and, and then really discover uh, the gift or gifts that, that God has given you. And then you, then you can be involved in, in the work of service for building up the body of Christ so that you, along with the church, might grow in maturity in Christ-likeness. Now others of you are, are more mature in your faith and you're already involved in the work of service for the building up of the body of Christ. And to those of you uh, who are involved, I just want to say to you this morning, I mean, I just want to encourage you. First of all, thank you for your faithful, consistent service to this body of believers. So thank you. And then secondly, I just want to encourage you this morning not to grow weary in the work. And it is work. You know, as the writer of, as Paul said in Galatians 6, 9, you know, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And the writer of Hebrews said, for God, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name. How? In serving the saints as you still do. And so be encouraged this morning, those of you who uh, you know, are very much a part of the life of this church, very much active in using your gifts for the common good, building up this body uh, in love. Thank you. But my concern is for those who profess to have been Christians, some uh, perhaps for quite a while, uh, but you're not involved. You're not involved at all in serving other believers. And, you know, I mean, I don't profess to know why. I I don't know uh, anyone's heart, that's for certain. Perhaps it's due to spiritual immaturity. I mean, that could be. Or perhaps it's just pure old defiance. You're just going to do what you want to do. So, I mean, it could be that. Or perhaps it's because you've become stagnant in your walk with Christ and grown cold in your love for Christ. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? What? Keep my commandments. And so maybe you've just become stagnant or cold in your love for Christ. So let's, let's say that's the problem. Let's start there. And so what do you need to do? Well, what did Jesus tell the church at Ephesus who had left their first love? They didn't lose it, they left it. What did he tell them to do? Repent. So let's start there by repenting and returning to your first love for Christ. And, and then, as he instructed the church at Ephesus, then do the works that you did at first. Repent of your lack of love for Christ. And, you know, and bottom line for any of us, 
our lack of walking in obedience to the Lord is due to our lack of love for Him. And so if your love has grown cold, then repent and and return to your first love and and do the things that you did at first. And then, get out of the stands and onto the playing field. Because Christianity is not a spectator sport. Don't be a spectator. Be a sweet tater. Get involved. If you need more equipping, then get equipped. But use what you've got. Use what you've been given in the work of service toward other believers for the building up of the body of Christ uh, so that it comes to unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. The full measure of the stature of Christ. Because in that way, this church will grow to maturity in Christ His kingdom rule will be extended through us and the world will get a glimpse, however imperfect, of the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love.